You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. I will be your host today. I'm Tim Muirhead. We have a great episode for you today as we have three of the members of the sound crew on Quentin Tarantino's latest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, sitting in with us today. But before we get to the interview, I just want to make a quick note about some technical difficulties we had during the interview. You're going to hear some clicks and clacks from the phone line. The choice was edit out big sections of the interview or just roll with it. And I think what they're saying was very interesting and worth keeping. So it might not be uh, as sterling as we would have liked it. So let's introduce the guys. Harry Cohen, Leo Marcel, and Zach Goheen. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Thank you. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. I want to tell you that I am obviously a big fan of Quentin Tarantino's previous films. And uh, when I first saw the trailer for this, I was super excited. I went out opening weekend, saw it in 70 millimeter. (laughs) And uh, this film does not disappoint. It is a super fun film. It's just getting to hang out with the characters in the film is a joy. And it's also a joy sound-wise because there are actual moments in the film that we won't get into. By the way, this is going to be a spoiler-free podcast, so if you haven't seen the movie yet, we're not going to give away anything in particular. But there are points in the movie where sound is written into the script that cause a chain of events that is very important to the film. For instance, car engines that are very loud. So you guys had to really step up and make sure that these sounds popped through and worked. Why don't we talk about the vehicles, first of all? How did you get the sounds of all those vehicles? It started with one day of access to all the vehicles that are in the film. So we ended up being able to record eight of them Mm -hmm. just in one day. So we had to make the most of our time and get exactly what we needed from each vehicle. Yeah, Eight cars in one day? Yeah. Wow. Also, multiple mic positions. Yeah. Yeah, we had four recorders going at a time. And yeah, we just kind of run and gun as much as we information we could record. It's kind of had a, like a pit crew kind of situation where it was while one guy is stripping mics off of the previous car, the next guy's, you know, loading up mics on the next car and yeah, so cause, forth. Because, yeah, as you know, you could take up to a week just to do one car. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, a lot of the main choices for editorial was the law on the exhaust. Mm-hmm. Mic choice for all the exterior engines was mm-hmm. usually the one used and... Inside of the cars, we had the DPA 5100, which is a six-channel microphone. Yeah. So we either used as a 5.1, an LCR, or chose a pair to use that sounded good for interiors mm-hmm. that would also pick up a little of the engine rumble to match the exterior. Yeah. I should interject here that we had to go through the recordings, the bits that we wanted to use, and isotope RX out all of the little rattles and stuff. For sure. Yeah. A lot of these cars are really old and... A lot of mechanical problems are actually mechanic there on on set. So if there was problems, which there were, they'd be able to fix them. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of rattling cars, a lot of old vintage. And so let's set this up a little bit. You guys are told you got to record eight cars in one day. How far into the process had you already started working on the film, or was this when they were actually shooting it? No, we 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 had it. This was actually at the set, off like a couple miles away from the set at a private parking lot. Yeah. Is actually where we were able to do it. It was the Spawn Ranch set, right? Yes, yeah, it, it was the Spawn set. Yeah, Spawn Ranch set, and it was a couple miles next door. Um, so we didn't hear any action of the production or anything. Um, yeah. So how did you know what you needed to get if you hadn't seen the cut yet? You were just kind of guessing, or we just kind of guessed. Uh, I think it was We'd, we knew from the script that yeah, there we was. We read the script and yeah. script notes, and we we knew the Carmen Ghia was going to be a big big car and the, the Ford MG TD, the Roadster. That's a bit, that was a big character, hero car player. And yeah. we knew Pacino was going to be in the Rolls Royce, so we wanted an authentic Rolls Royce. Yeah. And luckily there were, this is not a film that is uh, full of car chases. We didn't have to get, you know, any real aggressive driving. We made sure hierarchies of what's going to be most important and what looks most interesting. And the Ford Galaxy, the old creepy crawler, it was one we recorded just because it was the biggest crapper in the... Yeah. <laughs> and so we knew it's going to have the most in- some of the most interesting sounds to it. Yeah. And we knew from the script, you know, to your point that um, that car plays a role where it's kind of, you know, slowly driving uh, into and through a neighborhood. So... We made sure to get the 
the the sound of the wheels on pavement by and you, themselves. And you actually had them turn the engine off so we could coast and get all yeah. the mechanism sounds, just the movement of the car itself without the engine. And yeah, and you could use that for other cars. And but yeah. really, just to keep keep that one as an element of just creepy and nasty. Yeah, kind of give it a sinister character just in the sound. It's of it of the recording and uh, itself and. Um, yeah, we just kind of pointed the front of it downhill and threw it in neutral, <laughs> had the driver throw it in neutral and just had the mics out the window. So how many people were on the crew for this shoot? Uh, it was Leo and I, and then uh, our great, wonderful assistant, Paola Megrens. Mm-hmm. And we had outside hire, Kai Paquin. Yeah. And then uh, Wiley as well, Wiley Statement there as well. So um, that was uh, four of us being, you know, working around each other, handing off mics, getting cars taped up and mic'd up and we moved pretty efficiently it was it was hot it was august uh but i think we made a pretty good use of our time and you know we were kind of flying a little blind as far as knowing exactly what we needed to grab but we just tried to grab as much as we could from each of the cars while we had them we knew what we wanted to mic ahead of time which parts so that was the big time saver how did you know based on the models uh, we just knew like where the engine compartment's going to be where the exhaust is going to be on each one right is that through previous experience or research research and these are all old cars so you're dealing with carburetors and you're not you know yeah we actually recorded wiley had a porsche as well the same kind of air, a couple of years apart from that Porsche 911 that's in there. Yeah. That comes in handy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're not totally exclusively relying on those recordings in the editorial. We're augmenting with other records and Harry and Leo are both augmenting liberally with other records, but having a, a reference of what the actual sound of that car was, was always yeah. useful. Which is important to Quentin is to know that's the exact car sound from that era. Or to bring it into the cutting room and have them say, that's the actual sound, but I want something more interesting. It was pretty much those cars, though. I mean, you know, we augmented, just turned out to be just little bits here and there. Yeah. I was going to say, Harry, for your work on the Creepy Crawler, there was additional layers on top of the car. Yeah, there were. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that one was the the most frankenstein yeah yeah you know the galaxy it sounded cool and everything but we had to uh put in layers of all kinds of stuff i mean there was a layer that was a bolt being shaken in a can for goodness sake (laughs) yeah do you want to talk about your design on that it was pretty cool i loved hearing the layers of that because that one's a complete sound design yeah 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 well you know there was the original car and there was uh some low-end process to bring out you know the muffler sound and the bolt in the can and some just like an old noisy steam engine sound. Oh, cool. And we layered all those together, and that was the creepy crawler. And also thinking into the transition point to the next scene into the blender, there's mechanics that were made to match the cut into the blender. So it, it's kind of seamless transition. It, yeah. Yeah. Cool. You kind of mm-hmm. mentioned that at the beginning of the interview that that scene is a real interesting sound point because you it starts off camera you know, mm-hmm. and he hears it off camera and he notices it. So the sound directs the action of the scene from the get-go. And there is a transition between the interior of Leo's character making a drink in the blender and then the very mechanical and jalopy sound of the Ford Galaxy driving up. Yeah, it comes up into our face, yeah. really slowly making the mechanical noise and rhythm and then cuts to the blender making the same kind of mechanical noise until he doesn't notice, until he shuts off the blender that, oh, there's a shitty car outside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the edit during that scene and when he steps out into the street, it defies logic. It's like he shuts off the blender and he hears the engine muffler and he walks over towards the window and the sound gradually gets louder. But when he steps out into the street, we bring it back down again so that we can ramp it up again as he walks to the car. Yeah. Playing that kind of tightrope walk of a mix where you're like, I can't keep going up and up. So how do I play the perspective of that? Broke yeah. all the rules of audible physics. So, <laughs> For the sake of storytelling. It worked. It didn't even occur to me when I was watching it in the film. So now I got to go rewatch it and figure that out. Yeah. So Harry mentioned earlier that there aren't any car chases really in the film, but that kind of obscures how much car there is in the film. There are long scenes of people driving regularly in the film. Yeah. So the cars are a major character in it. And there's also the scene, one of the characters' house is on a steep road 
that has a very sharp turn onto the regular street. And there are two or three shots of cars just ripping down that hill and skidding out onto the main road. So the cars were a really important element to kind of set the mood and kind of tell you about the person who is driving those cars Mm -hmm. because the way they are driving informs kind of the kind of person that they are. So the cars were a super important part of the film. And that's why I'm interested in this car record session that you did because it really helps sell the film. So you guys did the eight cars in one day. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you had the uh, DPA surround mic on the interior. Mm-hmm. What kind of mics were you using on the exterior? Um, we had another DPA, like the Law 4060. 4060, mm-hmm. 40, yeah. And we also had a twin in the engine fan. and Another 4060 on the interior of the engine. And we had two boomers outside with the Sennheisers. Yeah, we had a Sennheiser, the 416 and a 418. We had the extended stereo. There was the onboard mics, which are, as Leo said, the 4060 on the muffler and on the engine compartment and the interior mics. But then we had like... We also had the SM on an exhaust as well. Oh, that's right. the other perspective. With good old trusty SM58 on the exhaust. <laughs> Padded up. Yeah. R- rolled in foam. Yeah. And then Roll- taped under and... With a windshield. Yeah. And then we had three people with handheld kit. So sound devices and Zoom recorders or what have you. I think Wiley was holding an 8040 stereo XY set and I had a 418, uh, the stereo 416 version. Kai had his mic. I forget what he was using, but those were the people. He had a Neumann. With, but... He had a Neumann, yeah. Each of us had a handheld kit to get passbys. Yeah, we were so. kind of in control of our own kits, just made sure we were in sync. And everybody had a walkie and we just kind of set up shop on different parts of the turns of the straightaway that we had. And I think one of the cool sounds that we were able to get with those pass by stations was kind of that distant sound, especially with the MG, which is really loud and kind of farty sounding. (laughs) You get that distant sound a block away from you. And that was really useful in the cut where he's kind of driving through the canyons of the Hollywood Hills. So you hear that kind of perspective shift of coming from camera away from camera and vice versa. Those distant trails were vital. So I saw a couple pictures from the shoot and one of them had you, Zach, very uh, epically running barefoot behind the car (laughs) in midair, kind of in a balletic type pose, almost pointing a mic at the exhaust. It's stupid, the things we do. It was one of those things. I was holding a handheld and was following the car and I was hearing my own footsteps in my recording on my headset. You just quickly shed your shoes and get rid of it. Um, So I was just following one of the cars barefoot um, and uh, managed not to break my foot or hurt myself in the process. But I recall one of your mics you actually had mounted with the extension. I think it was was actually it was the little 8030 or yeah, which was that was the hypercardioid or the regular. Yeah. So I have like a nice, um, it's actually been really useful. That that was a mic I chose to use a lot on the record. Just to kind of get the mic out from the muffler a little ways. And so it extends it off the back bumper. So what is this? Uh, Like a stand? It's like a C-clamped kind of arm you would use. It's I don't know. I think Manfrotto makes it or something. And it's just able to like, it's an armature that you can, you know, position a mic on a desk or clamp it to a desk or what have you. But I've used that on car records where I clamp it to, you know, where the bumper attaches to the body or some some hard point on the back of the car uh, and then have it be you know drafted by the car itself and then back it, and it just pushes it off the muffler like you know 18 inches and it's enough to give Which you a little bit that of, for the mg because it was so much pressure out of that exhaust it yeah. was like an air gun yeah compared to the others it's just a farty air gun uh <laughs> <laughs> it's a really wonderful sounding car it's really aggressive and in in the film it has such a aggressive um he drives it very aggressive a lot of aggressive yeah. driving so we knew we got a lot of started with a lot of aggressive maneuvers recording yeah so yeah the cadillacs were the more cruisers that we had more basic maneuvers and turns and nothing too fancy And just uh, not to harp on this recording session too much, but uh, I find it super interesting. So you had all those mics and they were going back into the car, into what recorder? The Zoom uh, F8 was... F8? When that was just for the, just to handle the 50, the 5100, because that, that ate up all, basically most of the channels. Mm-hmm. Everyone else had either their, ex- yeah, all the mics from the car would go into 
if we didn't have enough F8, we had a sound device and it plugged the other ones and just synced them mm-hmm. in the same car if we needed extra mics and everyone else has their standalone, whether it was sound device or Zoom F8. Yeah, I have a sound device 633 that I love and will die with. Um, and then um, I think Wiley had a 720 or 702. And but I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure for majority, we just had the F8 in the interior of the car. We didn't need the six channel of the DPA because we weren't recording LFE yeah. three remaining, which I think that, that housed all of our mics for per car. Right. The LFE is Harry's job. <laughs> yeah. It's like the low end is generated yeah. from the regular recordings of the car. I pass them through a low pass filter and then do some trickery with uh, some delays and stuff to generate a signal, which is uh, tonal low end that uh, tracks everything the car did. Yeah. Which was essential for these old cars to feel them when they come by. For sure. So you spent uh, a full day getting eight cars with multiple recorders, multiple channels of the cars. Next morning, you show up at work and give all that to someone to make something out of. Whose job was that? Hey, Leo, you want to do all the mastering of these car recordings? So yeah, that was that was on his plate. Yeah, I got handed all all the SDs and <laughs> they're slapped on my table and then a massive library to sync up. And, and that's where it began with yeah. the, for cars. And then the car editorial, it happened pretty quickly after that. Yeah. Uh, picture we started working on picture before it was before it was done shooting yeah so leo was on the project longer than anyone um i started in the cutting room with with fred raskin and Quentin. yeah so they can get little demo mixes done and while they're as they're going so they could Im- imagine the scenes with the somewhat of a full sound spectrum at least the essentials in the scene mm-hmm which seems to be kind of a running thing now, I guess, yeah, listening to this show and, and other people talk about it in interviews that it seems to be a trend now of putting sound editorial in in with the picture editorial. And we'd like to say that I think Wiley actually started that trend. Yeah, it's a very effective use of everyone's time. And, and Leo was in there early with Fred and, and Quentin, you know, cutting cars, cutting all kinds of sounds just to get them get the edit working and whatever they requested, you know, he was right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a picture editors trying to jump in themselves and find a gunshot or a car or something way out of their realm that, and they want it done right. And it's a Quentin film. So it made sense to have an actual start, editor on get editorial done at the same time. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say at this time, uh, you know, uh, we started with kill bill and in kill bill, they showed up with a fully filled out OMF, all these sounds that they had put together. And through the years, with every project that we've done, we've finally managed to get him to where uh, we get the OMF back and it is pretty much just our track that we sent him. Wow, that's a luxury. Yeah, it's kind of this like ping pong game um, where we, we there's a lot of weird communication happening through OMF uh, in a way. <laughs> you know, Leo's on the editorial side and is feeding Fred sounds and they'll send us a cut of a reel and that OMF will have um, some percentage of the original tracks that we made and then some percentage of new material that they cut in and some percentage of material that they, you know, flew in from Leo. And it's just this constant like ping pong where we're reincorporating new stuff, but then carrying forward the stuff that we had previously. And as the iterations go forth, hopefully the percentages lean more towards it's all our stuff. And as Harry's saying, by the time we get towards the the final mix, we can just look at the OMF and it's and, and it's that's our tracks. Happened. And that's yeah. what happened on this one. We were getting towards going into Sony and the OMS came back as it's our still has our names on it as our printed tracks. And unless it was there's a new scene or cut yeah conform and you can see what they did by just the cuts that were done on the omf it's funny it's like you don't even need to email each other or a change list or anything you can just look at an omf and see like oh there's a difference here and oh they must not have liked that shot because they cut it out (laughs) so you just you interpolate their intentions by what they chose to use and not use by the time we get to the stage with quentin his notes are very precise and limited there's there's not a whole track list of stuff we have very limited access to quentin's time it's just a very fluid situation with the cut changing rapidly from day to day and i think we had two weeks with quentin at the final mix which is very very quick for a film of this sort just because um most of the sound he's already heard yeah he's familiar with the whole track by the time it hits 
the stage. He's, yeah, he's not hearing anything new when on that first playback of the first day on the Sony Dub. So he's already coming in with his notes. Yeah, he's already. Yeah, he knows what he wants. So. Yeah. So how does it work when you're embedded with the picture department, Leo? Like, are you actually in the room with like a laptop and headphones or do you have your own edit suite and they come and t- grab you when they need you? Or Well, I, I had my full editing suite. So I, I have full, full 5.1 and mm-hmm. I had had S3 and my MIDI controls and design tools. So I had everything I would normally have. Perfect. And so it was actually, yeah, it was nice. I, it could have been soundproofed a little better. <laughs> yeah, the, the the trend, I guess, for a long time now is, you know, these aren't edited in a facility. They they basically just rent a house for a year and create edit suites out of bedrooms and living rooms. So, so, yes. so being in there, they so they're just a knock on the door away or instead of an email tracing back and forth or a call, can I get this? Can I have that? Just it was just immediate, and they could go through different variations of a scene of like, oh, this is I like this, I don't like this, and they can have it, and then a print for them for them and Quentin to play back at the end of the day or end of the week, and it was that was very beneficial for them. That was they really liked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So another thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, we mentioned the Spawn Ranch earlier. There's a scene that takes place on a. Uh, Within the plot of the film, it's a kind of retired movie set for Westerns. And uh, Brad Pitt's character shows up. And uh, most of the film has RT going constantly. There's radio or television going in the background for a lot of the film. And then we arrive at the Spawn Ranch, and a lot of that goes away. And we're left with uh, a much quieter soundtrack. But it's super eerie as well. Uh it's not a, a comfortable scene for the main character in it. So how did you guys go about uh, tackling this ambience for that section? That was um, an expressed desire from, from very early on to not do score. Yeah, there, we knew there was never going to be score at that scene yeah. at, from any point of it. But they knew they wanted it to be really scary. And very a lot of tension, so it was. We knew it was going to be designed, but it's still somewhere without crossing over totally into a horror movie territory. Right. Yeah, we didn't want to go for the cheese fest of just tonal rumbles, scraping and, symbols, and, and really, yeah, the yeah. obvious thing. You don't want to like mm-hmm. cross over into horror. We were trying to really just score it with design, with organic design. Yeah, and so what do you use in real, you know, in organic real world sounds that kind of give you that uneasy feeling? So which, there's dogs barking off screen. The dogs were a mm-hmm. big yeah. player, which Harry he made a whole orchestra that comments on things at times, and mm-hmm. it's yeah. If you notice, there's constant dog barkings, but it's always in between the dialogue. Yeah, funny how that works out. I always joke about that watching films uh, with my wife, where you're like, notice how that dog never barks while they're talking. Like it's it's that kind of thing where they're very specifically placed uh no they're really well-trained dogs yeah they're well very well-trained dogs um flies and and insects and a lot of wind yeah some whistling winds that and tree rustles and yeah and then on top of that we did all kinds of like uh metal sounds and yeah yeah bed creaks that just yeah yeah some window slaps and and you should talk about what you're recording which isn't is rhythmically like Throughout the Throughout, whole scene. I, uh, when I first started editing on that scene, I brought in some some material that I had recorded years ago, um, I think 2015, going up to Death Valley and just camping for a week and recording around the park and and had a whole library of stuff that I had just accumulated from, from going up there a lot. And one of the things I had recorded was this aero motor, which is, you know it when you see it, it's, it's like the windmill kind of thing that they use to pump water into a livestock reservoirs. Um, there was, you know, an old rusty one in the middle of a field and the wind was gusting and it was turning uh, with that. And it kind of just had that rusty, grindy right. sound. Very um, indirect, off-putting sound. Yeah. It's, it's a sound that doesn't feel designed. It feels natural. but It's it, like something's making that sound, and it makes sense in the scene. Yeah. Wiley got really into it. He was very excited about that sound. I love that sound. But he it was definitely a, a player that got a lot of attention in there. And there was also, 
Also, there's the birds, the crows. Yeah, there's, there's ravens. There's the coy- and... coyotes. There's, there's other animals playing and commenting on things. The, even the horse vocals, they're treated to sound vicious in the background that are kind of ghostly and not as pure and natural as they would normally would be. They're not friendly. How do you treat a horse to sound vicious? I mean, it's there's just pitching and some, some reverbs that and slapping them around the, the atmosphere that just made it darker. Yeah. Slapping the echo around, not actually slapping the horses, right? No, I mean... <laughs> somebody had to slap somebody, the horses. Somebody but... slapping the horses. <laughs> I would say that uh, uh, one person who's not on this conversation, uh, Sylvain Lesur, did good, did a lot of really great work with the winds as Yeah, he well. uses Akima, which is a machine that does algorithms that creates all one-of-a-kind wind uh, textures that... From uh, you can create them from all different kinds of elements. That doesn't have the source doesn't have to be wind, but create these windly, very like highly designed like. And that's, um, that's his specialty, so I yeah. can't even speak. Yeah, speak on it. We don't we don't know what he does, but, but it's magic. The result and it's, is is beautiful, amazing. Uh, we had worked on uh, that show Godless together. I love that show. That was a really good show. Yeah. So he did a lot of wins for that. So we kind of carried that forward into this one as well. And he started that work on Hateful Eight. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes. So another uh, set piece isn't the right word, but another prop that's featured in the film early on is uh, there's a memory sequence where we see Leonardo DiCaprio's character using a giant flamethrower did you guys uh, record anything special for that? Or how did you build that flamethrower? That's a Harry Cohen special right there. Here we go, Harry. I've done a lot of work with fire, uh, you know, especially on uh, a film called Deepwater Horizon. But on the flamethrower, I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I, it actually, I recorded a little scripto. Uh, it's like a lighter, a charcoal lighter or something. But I just used lots of layers of different elements you know vocal elements and animal elements and fire elements and and uh we just mixed them together and came up with the flamethrower yeah and there's those are all they they're delivered to the stage you know in various levels and various layers where you know there's straight flame layers but then there's a whole layer that is more kind of beastly growly screamy and what i like is the the low-end dynamic of it you feel it coming across the screen which yeah yeah, you got to keep it moving, you know. But for my taste, I, I think it could have been, you know, more vocal, more uh, mouthy. But what did you use for the? Do you know what animal screams those are? Offhand, no, you know. But there are horses and there are tigers. I think some chameleons. Was there some laser action in there? It's possible. <laughs> We've worked together on on some, on some stuff, so we get to know each other's sounds. The cool thing about the flamethrower is that when it's used in the film. This, I was in a sold out screening and flamethrower is used. Everyone is like taken aback and gasps and then it stops and it's the super powerful flamethrower. And then everyone started laughing, which in the context of the moment, it was not necessarily a funny thing as much as just like a release that we all had the same reaction to. And uh, it was a really great communal moment that you don't necessarily get in films that much anymore. Uh, there's a couple scenes in that where everybody in the audience just kind of exhaled at the same time or laughed at the same time in a way that was uh, like, it's okay, everybody, we're going to get through this, okay? Yeah. And it was really fun to see in a theater. So anybody that's listening to this, go see it in the theater. It is worth it. Quinn has a way of of building moments like that. I remember in uh, Kill Bill, there was a scene where Lucy Liu cuts off the Yakuza guy's head and there's blood spurting up and he, he did it in such a rhythm that it gets a laugh. I mean, you know, here's a guy with his head cut off, and he makes it funny. The talent. I think it's, it's just so over the top, and then plus one, and then yeah. at that point, it's funny. And on the sounds, you know, in terms of sound, the the flamethrower pins the needle as far as your you know frequency spectrum is concerned. You're yeah, yeah. you're making all the paper woofers uh, rattle. So uh, yeah. it, it and from put- the story point, it's just it. If they get what's coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a pretty fun uh, instrument to wield, I suppose, in real life. But it also on the soundstage, it's fun to wield that instrument as well. Yeah, it would be pretty fun to re- wield in real life. You're right. It would be pretty crazy. <laughs> Haven't yet done Which, that. Someday. Leo really did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually him. Doing Who it. did? Oh, Leo DiCaprio. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, not me. Um, Different Leo. <laughs> so I just want to take a moment to say something for Harry's uh, benefit. Harry, in 2017, I believe, you won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the MPSE. Uh, yeah, it was a tremendous surprise. I wasn't in the room, but you can see the video online of uh, you getting the award. And when they call out your name, 
the crowd cheers in a way that is not a polite cheer. It's a, we love you cheer. I don't know if that makes sense, but like you are respected in the industry in a way that I'm not sure many other people are. Since we started this podcast, so many people have, when we're done the interview, been like, that was fun. You know who you should have on the show? You got to get Harry. Harry's the best. So I just wanted to pass that along to you, Harry, that uh, you are an extremely respected person and uh, whatever you've done, keep it up because people love you. Well, thank you very much for that. You know. Um, in your acceptance speech for that Lifetime Achievement Award, we're going to just veer off the film just for a sec. You talked about uh, the idea of how mentorship is kind of changing in the world of audio post right now. And that's something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. So I just wanted to see uh, what your current thoughts on it are. The problem, obviously, is that back in the day, in the 80s, 90s, earlier, all these films had a bunch of interns and a bunch of people who were learning the craft as they got to work on the projects. And that uh, system is kind of going away. Have you found any ideas for new ways to tackle this at all, Harry? Only specifically uh, what I encounter, you know, I mean, Leo started as my intern as well. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in, in the 80s and stuff, we had opportunity to hire interns from various places, uh, most notably Full Sail. And that gave us an opportunity to check them out. And uh, the good ones, we, you know, I, I would just tell them, uh, you know, here's how it's going to go. You're, we're going to pay you like, you know, dirt for a year. <laughs> but at the end of that year, you'll have real credits on real film and experience. And either you will have made yourself so essential to the process that will hire you or else you can just go and get a job elsewhere. But uh, that changed. Uh, I guess there were some interns who went through the program at other facilities and stuff and didn't get hired and they complained to the union. So the union uh, instituted a rule where uh, if you want to have an intern, th- they're making like a, a a salary of about two-thirds of what a regular editor would make. So a sound supervisor is faced with the choice of, of hiring, you know, an intern at two-thirds the price or just throw in the extra third and, and get an experienced guy. So the uh, that whole thing went away. Sort of. So it was real unfortunate. And uh, I know uh, there have been several efforts and several programs to, uh, it, you know, institute that kind of a, a thing of, of passing your learning, you know, to the next generation and, and uh, you know, whatever. But uh, I, uh, you know, I'm, I've like aged out of, you know, of the, the main thrust of that. So it just is what it is. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is moving forward because people aren't learning the way they used to learn. And, uh, no, the industry has changed because, uh, nowadays there are, uh, all of these sound effects libraries that, that, uh, you know, you can purchase. And, uh, you know, if you're an editor today, you, you have all of this material, which was unavailable to us, uh, you know, back in the day. So, so it's different and, and it's faster. And, uh, that's just what it's become. But the the materials are there, uh, are you know, there's more material out there to to purchase online, but the techniques that go into making good design are still um it's still a craft. And I, you know, I I consider myself super fortunate, I I know Leo does too, to ha- have had time to go up and spend and and you know, nerd out with Harry about like, what do you do? What, how did you do this? What's this thing? And he's so generous with his knowledge. He's so generous with his time and is not at all Harry, if I may say, I I don't see you. I I meet so many people that have been in the industry for so long that they just kind of have this. Yeah. I just kind of, you know, they kind of call it in or they, they phone it in after a while or they, they have kind of a over it attitude. And Harry's like, he's a child in a, in a sandbox of sound still. He loves his, his blood, his life source is getting new source material and, and, you know, going after a new sound. And it's really inspiring to, you know, youngish guys like myself who uh, get to, just get going in the industry and, and see how you can still be at Harry's level and still have fun. And and uh, and he's done the research. It's hard to compete with the man. I'll be like, look at this new plugin. I just he's like, oh, I've played, been playing with that for weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he knows about the new thing before the new thing came out. Like you think that 
uh, yeah, he's he's on top of the the latest and greatest more so than any other person I know. Well, thank you guys very much. Yeah, sorry to gush about you, Harry. <laughs> we like we're, and that that goes to Timothy's point of uh, you know the applause was uh, in that uh, auditorium. It's not just us that feel that way, for sure. So by extension, am I to assume that Leo was one of your better interns that so you didn't, you kept him, you didn't kick him to the curb there? No, Leo's just an average intern. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's a very talented uh, individual and, uh, he, you know, uh, coming on the scene and and I've I've encouraged him to explore the, the you know the the mixing aspect as well as the design aspect uh, in light of uh, of today's climate and I think he's done that very well. Well, thank you and Harry's been nothing but the best mentor you could imagine having and yeah. You'd sit there for one day in his room just being a fly watching him work and learn an enormous amount and yeah. then imagine sitting there for a year straight and it's it's just mind blowing. Yeah, and humbling. And <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's enough of kissing Harry's butt. Yeah, okay, All that's right. not, that's enough. Yeah, <laughs> part two. <laughs> so Zach, what was your main role in terms of sound editorial on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Um, I kind of was clean up. I kind of came in, like I said, Leo had been on the project the longest. I came in for two months, three months, two and a half months of work. Um. And, you know, Harry had been on for a while as well. And, and I, I came in just to kind of help the final pushes towards the Sony stage mix. Um, and then, and then went over to the Sony stage and helped things along there. Um, uh, I kind of just filled in a lot of gaps in a lot of different places. I don't know if there was any like specifics part that I had a major hand in outside of like, you know, those Death Valley recordings for Spawn Ranch. But um, otherwise, uh, the other thing that was big on this project that is also part of the evolution of, of the industry um, that we're seeing is we cut a lot of things that would be f- later on or that would have been done uh, by Foley. Okay. We had cut footsteps. We had cut cloths and whatnot from uh, previous Foley recordings or our own Foley or, or MIDI Design. Or, or MIDI, MIDI Foley. Uh, and some of that was redone later by Gary Hecker on the Foley stage, but some of it maintained and, and carried through into the mix. And I'd say 80, 80% to 90% is is handcrafted. And yeah. 10% came from the stage with Gary. And those were for just details to make the movie glisten, just fun stuff that we didn't want to waste time with on the stage that we have recorded so many times for so many big films. We don't need those hand pats again and those, yeah. those coat grabs and we have that crap. <laughs> cigarette puffs, a lot of cigarette puffs on this one. Um, but, yeah. So we're, we're using stuff from our library of, of previous recordings and, and just cutting them by hand. Um, and then what, anything or, that's new that we need to get, uh, special will will yeah, program for Gary. Yeah, any special stuff like Pacino's suit is a, we want a one of a kind suit or the hero characters at Leo's jacket. We want his leather jacket to be '60s badass, and yeah, he, we want to hear it. There's just specific stuff, the hero stuff, Foley-wise, is what we got recorded that we really wanted to be unique and mm-hmm. that you're going to know you're going to hear it. And So my my uh, what I contributed a lot of was cutting Foley in um, and then, you know, programming stuff for Gary. Which is crucial because with Quentin Tarantino, he loves Foley and he Big. loves the smallest detail of each of each Foley cut. He wants to know that there's the grit under the shoe that the leather is creaking as he's stepping on the piece of grit and it's a wood floor that you hear the creak too. Yeah. And he wants to know all these elements are there and that it's, it's, it's one of those things that you, you, you know, everybody here on this conversation and maybe listening to this podcast understands, but the Joe Schmo doesn't understand that it's a kind of magical layer when Foley is done well. And, you know, Wiley and, and Harry, uh, on previous Quentin movies, you know, and Gary, um, when it's done well, it creates such a premium to the soundtrack that you can't, when it's not there, it just totally blows your mind how much of a lift it is. And it's, it's the smallest details. I mean, one of my favorite is, uh, the ring on the glass when he grabs his drink 
you know, mm-hmm. you hear a ting of the of his ring, his wedding ring, or I don't know if it's wedding ring, uh, hit the glass, you know. And then Pacino, as he's gesticulating at the Musso and Frank's dinner table, he's gesticulating with his hands, and every once in a while, his hands like hit the table, and you hear a clunk of his ring on the table because he's this, you know, uh, movie executive, and he's got a big chunky ring on, and their chains too. Just to hear their neck for that time period, that was popular to have the gold chain and the turtleneck, and to hear that chain to make you a lot of nostalgia. Those things are just beautiful, sparkly. You know, we call it this kind of sheen on top of the soundtrack that just that gives it this production value and and always like anything else doesn't get in the way of the dialogue. It's cut around the dialogue. It's cut in the gaps and it just makes the the whole movie shine. It's, yeah, it's having all of those little details consistently throughout is what makes it such a thick film, thick sound wise. Yeah. Wiley sits there and he just always is asking for more detail throughout, you know, throughout the course of the mix. He, little yeah. things he notices, and he just never stops. Yeah. And even all recorded fully is absolutely sweetened. Yeah. Each one with layers. It's everything becomes a sound effect in, in a Quentin film. Every every piece does. So it's all rich with layers. And it's like any other film, I guess. But especially on working with Wiley and on this film, the line between what is Foley and what is a f- effect. It's like I guess this is you're just creating this massive Foley track. It's a, it feels like. But it's a beautiful thing, and it's a really... um, It's a lot of fun, too. It's fun to just keep going deeper into the details. Like, when you think you've got the scene held together, it's fun to just be like, what what about that brush that goes by in the foreground? Can we make a whoosh on, you know, like, just making those little lifts as you add to the film it's uh felt but not heard at some at some times but it definitely helps yeah a lot of a lot of what we do is almost subliminal and then yeah it's like design inside spawn ranch inside the house like bad plumbing inside of the walls that Harry created <laughs> very subtle but it creates these bad vibes that are going on yeah bad plumbing but everything's sweet the cars even a lot of the passbys there we used boat motors that are more interesting than the actual car itself going by it those old outboards make a gluggity glug that's more interesting than the the 60s whatever firebird going gluggity glug it was the boat yeah. motor would read through and sound better and a lot of crazy stuff to make it mm-hmm. sound more real than the real yeah real's no fun it's <laughs> being true to the to the actual car sound or actual guns i've learned this from harry more than anyone it's like you know, I, I think when I first started working with Harry, I was like, oh, so did you use, you know, that the accurate sound of that prop and what it makes? And he's like, no, <laughs> I used the one that I sound that sounded the best. And I think that's so key. Like it doesn't the car buy in the background doesn't have to be, you know, a Plymouth, a 1968 Plymouth. It can be a Johnson outboard boat motor because it just cuts through the music. Uh, and the din of the mix so much better and sounds cooler. Which we had to work with the music a lot, a lot of music scores that, or music pieces, yeah. not nothing composed. So let's talk about a particular kind of a storytelling element in the film. With uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, character is an actor, and there is a moment where he is shooting a uh, scene of a TV show that he's working on, and we as the viewer kind of cut between the actual kind of final project of what he's shooting and being on set. How did you guys tackle that sound wise? Did you uh, change how, what we're hearing a bit when we're going between those two? I don't think there's a much of a mix move there. That scene where he's, he breaks character and says line, line, line. Yeah. Up until, yeah, exactly. For that, we built a classic Western, full on Western background with heightened town and everything being, we purposely made it very busy going on and horses and outside people hollering and wagons going by. So when it comes down to him cutting character, we pull everything but Mark Lulano's production. So it's it, it brings out everything from surrounds all the way to a the into a one mono raw production. Yeah. And so it's to turn it real for a moment. And then as he says action and back it it opens back up into the the Western world. Right. Which is kind of exactly what we were just talking about. It's like taking away the sheen of we, what we do, which we, is all of the like added layers of background and all of the Foley and all of that stuff that you shouldn't notice, but just make it feel like a movie. When you cut it out to just be the mono production dialogue, it sounds flat. We experimented with like, let's make production noises and let's make it like they're kicking the lights and moving the cameras. But then without all any of that, and just try just the production. Well, except for the, we put in the sound of, uh, of the camera 
re-racking on the rails. Uh, yeah, when he says, let's let's start from one, and then, yeah, Harry put a, the camera going, rolling back into place, and then action, and then the horse goes back up, and the fan starts spinning, and the wagons are back, and everyone's... It's a super effective technique. Like, when it was a really magical moment in the film, the way you guys transition there. It's super cool. And that was when we had the battle early on. They wanted to know how we were going to do that. Mm-hmm. So we went through a couple of experiments, and that was... that finally was the easiest one that we didn't do was just pull everything and have a mono production down the center and yeah that was the winner and then have the girl <laughs> off stage reading the line and it, just being that bland was, yeah. was the best and there was there's a lot of that in this film of movie sets as a scene like the scene of the film that we're watching is taking place on a movie set or on a lot so we built or harry and leo i, I actually wasn't much part of this built a lot of backgrounds of just movie sets and that was an interesting thing is like, what does a movie set sound like? It sounds different than a city or a or, or neighborhood, but it can't be too on the nose and it can't be too. Those are whole canvases themselves to build. Those are just starting blank. You had to start for those backgrounds with group wallas and then construction pieces. There was a lot and, of construction use. And then still yeah. you wanted some horses that were around production, still neighing and stuff. Yeah. And then not their showtime neighs, though. Not, not. <laughs> yeah. And Winnie's and all their, some vocals and then people dropping stuff, a couple hammering and. Yeah. Cause a, a movie set is ultimately a construction but, site. But there's no one, <laughs> there's no file you're going to find in the library that was going to work. You had to build each, each background for the whole movie had to be built. Yeah. With lots of layers. Yeah. Little, just small hammer here. And then. And then make the, sure it differentiates from when they say action into the Western world. Now it's just Western material. It's just mm-hmm. what's in that world. But like during the Bruce Lee section, like that. That's on a set, you know, so you have to have a very subtle background that feels like it is from from a set. And actually what I I did it late in the game, we were on the Sony lot and um, the Bruce Lee section was kind of like a little limp as far as the backgrounds. Um, uh, I, I don't think we had Lindsay. It was a hard scene. It was a hard. It everyone was, was just so still. Yeah, yeah. Like have background action from characters. There's extras in the background, but none of them are talking or moving. And, and the ones that are talking, we programmed for uh, Lindsay Alvarez did ADR with us. She was a big part of our team and super helpful. And even that group we had to turn down because these, yeah. these people are not very animated. They're just, yeah. The one guy smoking. And- yeah. yeah, a lot of cigarette puffs. But Lindsay had programmed ADR, group ADR, for those few moments where it does exist, but I don't think we had had it in yet. You know, some of the feedback that we were experiencing on the stage was like, it just feels too dead. I ended up going out late on, we were working weekends. And so during the weekend, the Sony lot was pretty ghost town. So I actually went out with a stereo pair of mics and just recorded an actual, uh, the the background sound of a lot, which is mostly uh, a lot of AC, AC generators, <laughs> the occasional like craft services guy loading in a into yeah. a loading dock or that kind of thing. And if you get that kind of distant perspective, it but, just has a little bit of texture. But what we did with that actually was put it center. Yeah. Because it filled the center and then we used the shipyard. Yeah, a lot of the ship shipping yard Shipyard kind of sounds. Yeah. Harry, what was your favorite sound moment in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's really hard to say. <laughs> I, I guess it would be uh, part in that uh, we're considering a spoiler. And is this his favorite sound or just favorite one to cut or edit? Uh, well, however he wants to go. You know, I, I of course, the flamethrower, uh, of course, the um, the vintage the, you know, the, the vintageization of sounds uh, when he is in the... Uh, oh, the Italian vintage uh, show. Let's talk about the vintage vintageization. Wow, I can't say that word. Um, do you want to go into that, Harry? So uh, I, I originally came up with a chain that would make stuff sound like it was uh, recorded in the 1930s for Inglorious Bastards, which has a movie inside the movie. And, uh, the, you know, for that movie inside the movie, we flew to... Berlin uh, and uh, posted that there, and and I we were experimenting with uh, different ways to to make it a vintage sound, but uh, ultimately it wound up being this chain, uh, this just crazy chain, a chain of plugins. You know, it was like uh, it took two oxes, you know, uh, one ox with uh, I don't know eight plugins into another ox with several more. Is this for the Italian sequence? Yeah, and you know, it, it was a question of. Uh, whether we wanted to be period accurate, 
in all of that sound. And uh, in some scenes we were, and uh, in other scenes, like the, at the beginning of the film, opens up with a, a period piece, but we decided that we didn't want to just present the audience with, uh, with uh, that kind of sound at the beginning of the film. So, so uh, there, you know, the, the soundtrack just goes in and out of uh, the various eras, as it were. And now you're going to go through and tell us each of the plugins and the settings that you used on that chain, right, Harry? <laughs> if I could remember them, <laughs> it's like all of the non-obvious ones. And, and I, I used some uh, Native Instruments Reactor plugins. I remember I used the Equalizer plugin and, you know, just, just a, a whole bunch of stuff. Again, it ain't the tools, it's how you use them. <laughs> but also it's the tools. Thank you very much, guys, for talking to us about this today. Uh, I had a really great time listening to you guys tell the stories. It's, it's a super fun movie that is fun to talk about because it has layers to it that aren't just, uh, there's an explosion, so we hear an explosion. There's stuff being told in the story subtly in the background that uh, affects the way you feel about the characters without you knowing, and that is my favorite kind of sound design. And uh, it's something that I really appreciate, and I know that people listening to this show really appreciate. So uh, Harry, Zach, and Leo, thank you very much for talking with us today, and uh, hopefully we can have you on again sometime in the future. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Okay, before we wrap this up, I just want to send out a huge thanks to Adriana Gomez. She's a sound editor, sound designer, and Foley artist. She's worked on different projects with indie filmmakers, podcast producers, visual effects artists, and advertising companies from many different countries. She's currently working on her first Foley SFX library to share online. She jumped in and edited this episode like a rock star. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you head to our website to the page for this episode, you can find links to her IMDb, her Twitter account, and her website, adrianacomposer.com. That's www.andreinacomposer.com. So go check her out. She was awesome to work with. Great talent. Also, head to our website for this episode, and you can see tons of pictures of the recordings of the cars that they did that we talked about for about the first half of this episode. So there's a bunch of pictures there. There's also a picture from the soundstage of the whole sound crew with Quentin Tarantino. So head there and check it out, tonemenderspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll get back to you guys soon. Stay tuned. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 